the Bonnet College. In 2001, when D&D Thunder Edition launched, Wizards of the Coast also attempted to relaunch the Chainmail brand of miniatures combat. Chainmail was supported with a line of metal miniatures from various factions. Chainmail, like D&D Third Edition, was meant to be set in the world of Greyhawk setting, but it developed a different continent than any other Greyhawk product had featured, with the only role-playing support coming in the form of Dragon Magazine articles. That was a, you know, one of those actual physical magazine books that you could go pick up at your bookstore like Walden Books or something. Man, just turn to dust now. Anyways, anyways, given the completely uncomplicated nature of D&D canon... <laughs> Especially surrounding Greyhawk, I'm sure this continent is just waiting out there to be uncontroversially explored in the future. And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. And while we love lots of other RPGs, D&D is the one that followed us home, so we kept it. Hi, I'm Ange, and I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnomecast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. And in 2021, they made me head gnome. And I'm Jared, the review gnome at Gnome Stew. I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. After we look at the games we're running in the campaign journal, or not, we'll be talking about all of the intricacies of battle maps in our workshop. Then we'll have some recommendations of D&D-related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. So after a little bit of juggling dates, I was able to run a finale for my teen game. Um, I had been running them through Dragon of Icefire Peak, but it became clear that we weren't going to be able to do a more thorough playthrough of the rest of the adventures as written or even the last adventure as written. But I still wanted to give them a dragon fight to close out the campaign. At this point, all of the quote-unquote kids had graduated high school and were on their way to college, and, you know, everyone kind of agreed that it was time to, you know, lay this campaign to rest since it was going to be even more fickle in the future to try and get everyone together. Now, knowing that they only generally get through about two encounters per session, I set the last game up to have them go back to Phandalin as it's being attacked by orcs that were essentially cultists worshipping the dragon. Now, some of the town was on fire, and the residents that had survived were holed up inside of the tavern, and the beefier town folk that could fight were out and about, but they were obviously starting to lose their ground. Um, the PCs rushed in and tried to help out. After a little bit of teenage back and forth about whether or not they should just start looting, looting the buildings that were on fire. <laughs> um, I am actually really proud of them for some of their abilities that they hadn't really connected with prior to this game. Uh, the druid actually used Call of Lightning, uh, and the bard ended up using Shatter after I very deliberately pointed it out to them and told them that it was the poor man's fireball. <laughs> But they were like, oh, okay, I didn't realize I had that. And I'm like, honey, you've had that since, <laughs> like, a level ago. And the monk and the paladin laid down some serious damage in the melee. Once the orcs were dealt with, they ended up finding out where the lair of the dragon was and that the dragon was planning on attacking the town soon, which is why the orcs came down to attack. They did a little bit of cleanup around town, helping put out fires, 
and you know heal up some of the townsfolk in fact they were they they were they were very cute about how concerned they were about some of the npcs <laughs> that had gone down in the fight with the orcs the the paladin very purposely rushed over to them as soon as the fight was over to lay on hands and give them each a few hit points mm-hmm now, the adventure as written has them working through Ice Spire Keep to get to the dragon at the end with fighting the orcs in the keep. But I knew that with the pace <laughs> of the way the kids play, there was no way we were ever going to get to that. So I had the dragon in a cave that was just below the keep that had recently been revealed due to a rock fall and all of that. Now, they were super nervous and excited about this fight. The monk kept going, ah, maybe we should turn around. Do we have to do this? I'm not sure I want to fight a dragon. But the druid ended up casting Pass Without Trace on them to let them sneak into the lair. And they rolled well enough on their stealth that I let them get a surprise round in on the the dragon. By this point, they had learned the dragon's name. So the bard started the fight out with a vicious mockery. Cryovane? How about Cryolame? (laughs) They do give some credit to the Paladins player for that one, but still, I I thought it was brilliant. And as nervous as they were, they threw everything they had into the fight, and they took that dragon out in three rounds. I am very glad the dragon did get its breath weapon off at least once, Mm -hmm. but man, did they lay it on. Basically, the Paladin smited every chance he got, and one of his rolls was a crit, so he like got the super spectacular shiny paladin damage on that one very satisfying yeah it's super (laughs) satisfying i can't take that away from them i did give the dragon a feature at the very end that most dragons don't have basically it exploded once they killed it because i needed it you know okay this is gonna seem a little bit like anticlimactic with as fast as they killed it so Oh, it explodes. You need to make a deck save. And like they they were fine. <laughs> they were fine. The the druid and the monk had both taken resistance potions to protect them from cold or just damage in general. And they both made their saves against the breath weapon, so they took like half of half. And the paladin, he took the full amount. He took the full amount, but he it's the paladin. Yeah. He had a decent amount of hit points. He could take it. They were all super happy at the end, and they asked if I'd be willing to run them in other games when mm-hmm. they're home on break with different characters so they can try out different classes. And you know what? You, you bet, kids. <laughs> Absolutely. You just let me know when. The awesome wrap up to that. Did you, uh, I know we had talked about this a little bit in between. Did you end up using the the young dragon stats that they had in there, or did you... I I mixed and matched a little bit. I gave um I gave Cryovane more hit points. Mm-hmm. And I think I adjusted a couple of his other abilities slightly, but it was mostly just at the level they were at, he was going to be a little squishy anyway. Yeah. So I did bump up his hit points without changing too much of his attack abilities or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think I dialed the damage of the breath weapon down a little. Because that was one of the things that varied between the as-written mm-hmm. young adult and the one you shared with me. Because mm-hmm. um, the one you shared with me had, I want to say, 8d6, whereas the as-written one, it was 8d8. Yeah. So it was like 45 versus 35 points average damage. That's cool. Yeah. 
Well, the thing is, too, I mean, it lasted three rounds, which is the kind of the default standard amount of time a decent fight lasts in 5e. So, I mean, yeah, it's not disappointing if it went three rounds. I just I, the the dragon really only got one good round to do something mm-hmm. um, because they got their sneak sneak attack, not sneak attack, their surprise round. Uh, and then the real combat started, the dragon got his, his breath weapon off, and then the next round started, and they kind of took him out before he had a chance to go again. <laughs> but you ended with the dragon, which is always a good ending. And end with the dragon. It's dungeons and dragons. <laughs> Bring out the fine china. <laughs> so in my case, I have to say campaign, what's that? <laughs> We've had some medical emergencies in the family lately, which means I have not gotten a lot of gaming in. Right now, I don't have much in the way of a campaign journal. Hopefully that will uh, turn around in the near future. Real life always comes first. <laughs> and, you know, everyone understands that sometimes gaming, you know, has to has to take a back seat momentarily as other things are dealt with. That said, I definitely wanted to spend some time talking about gaming to get my mind <laughs> off of other things that have been going on. <laughs> the Dungeon Master's Workshop. Moving on into the Dungeon Master's Workshop. Though it can be easy to forget in today's RPG landscape, D&D began as an offshoot of historical miniature war games. In fact, the original release noted rules for fantastic medieval war game campaigns, playable with paper and pencil and miniature figures. It wasn't too long before the idea of battle maps joined those miniatures as a fixture of D&D. So we thought we'd take some time and talk about battle maps and their history in D&D and some thoughts on modern usage. So when did the battle map first start showing up in the history of D&D? So this is uh, a thing that's kind of interesting because there's been you know, encounter maps drawn into adventures and, you know, almost going all the way back. But the very earliest assumptions of D&D didn't necessarily break things into like the five foot, you know, squares or anything like that, or into hexes or anything like that. But what they did do, the measurements in these things were in inches, which is exactly how like the miniatures war games, you know, assume things. So in other words, you know, you were telling your character you can move six inches on your turn. And that meant you could move 30 feet based on the scale, but they're still giving a lot of these measurements in inches. The other thing that's interesting is um, most of the maps did start showing things in squares, you know, in the when they showed you the entire dungeon. Those would be measured out to either five or 10 feet on a side. So that was kind of your start of that, because that was that was the relational map that the DM was going to be able to look at to see, you know, is this room going to be, you know, 40 foot by 40 foot or whatever, you know, the encounter area was going to look like there. Since D&D came out of Wargaming, my understanding is that many of them in the early days just created terrain or something on the table and then would use rulers to determine distances for movement and abilities, very, very much like miniature wargaming. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was a I know, at least in all of the books that I've read about, like Gygax and his original group, he had like, you know, they all had their sand tables, which is basically, you know, the table where you would build up sand. So there was a hill here and, you know, you're traveling across terrain here. So 
they weren't so much using battle mats as much as they were using these, you know, sand tables and the terrain tables that they already have from, you know, playing their wargaming. Now, when did maps start showing up in adventure materials? Third edition is probably the first time you're seeing when I mean this, I mean like the maps where you pull out a map and you put miniatures directly on that map to use that map. It probably is really in third edition. And specifically, it's probably a lot more in 3.5. Towards the end of 3.5, there was a change in how they actually wrote up adventures to where every encounter, instead of telling you, you know, there's five orcs in this room and this room is by this much by this much, there would actually be a page in the book showing just that room measured out in squares, and they would show you orc A is here, orc, a, orc B is here and show you exactly where to set everyone when you got ready to start that encounter. It took up a lot more space than, you know, just explaining the encounters the way they did previously, but it became like the standard that they really used in a lot of the, um, the, the later adventures. And a lot of those later adventures did start including maybe not every single map, but at least for a lot of the set piece, you know, situations where, you mm -hmm. know, this is the big, uh, you know, culmination of this chapter. So you have this poster map that you can pull out and unfold it and use it for this. Now, I know a lot of the older modules would have maps printed in them of the dungeon, but it was expected that the GM would transpose that onto whatever they were using at their table, whether it was paper or I, I honestly, I, I, Wish I'd had time to do a little bit of research into the Chessex mm -hmm. dry erase, wet erase maps. Like, I want to say Tom, my first GM, had something like that, but it may have been just giant graph paper we were using. And the thing is, some of that material, when it came to, like, having the hexes or the squares, you know, on the battle map that you could roll out that might be dry erase, that you could do that. Some of that existed before D&D fully adopted that because other games had started using more tactical movement and also because people use those for wargaming. I used hex-based maps for Battletech way before I was using, you know, officially, you know, squared off, you know, grids for D&D. So, I mean, that's, that's really interesting. The other thing is that um, in AD&D 2nd Edition, towards the end, they did start in... Uh, combat and tactics showing these like here's this maneuver you could use and all of the illustrations they used there were showing you know these five foot squares and showing very precise movement of miniatures on that map so it feels like towards the end of second edition they already had this idea that they wanted to move towards a more specific implementation of what this was going to look like on a battle map i do remember that that my gms back then were very particular about making sure they got the maps exactly as they were in the modules <laughs> onto the play surface. And heaven forbid you as a player actually looked at the map in mm. the module. <laughs> That's cheating. That's metagaming. You should, I, you should exile yourself from all gaming communities from here until... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what rules existed in the early editions related to maps and battle maps? So I, I touched on this before, but I... I'm still just fascinated because this was a thing that didn't even like sink in that much into my brain when I would look at the AD&D um, first edition, you know, products and it would say this spell has a range of 10 inches. And then you would look it up and they would say, well, 10 inches converts to the scale. 
you know, my brain is sitting here going, I wasn't even thinking like, why does it say 10 inches instead of just saying this many feet? Because I'm just envisioning it. I'm not actually playing with this. The reason that there's kind of this divide between using representational miniatures and all that is there was kind of a split right at the beginning of D&D because what we commonly call zero edition D&D now, you know, the old white box set with all the little booklets, they assumed you had chainmail. So there was actually like a lot of combat wasn't fully explained in those books. And they expected you would get your chainmail out and realize that, you know, hills reduce your movement this much and you get out a tape measure and you can see that, you know, you move this many inches. And none of that was really reprinted other than just referring to ranges and movement, you know, by inches. What you had is the people that were from that original gaming community that this came from that understood wargaming and that they needed the, the chainmail rules, they ended up, you know, still kind of using those combat terrain maps to do these things and using miniatures for all of this. But you had all these other people that thought this was such a neat, imaginative game. And I don't know how to really deal with all of this other stuff, but I'm just going to wing it <laughs> and I'm just going to envision it in my head. And that was kind of the beginning of a lot of people house ruling stuff for D&D. And even Gygax said most of the D&D that he observed early on was people just doing this theater of the mind because they didn't have that. It spread so quickly away from that wargaming base. People just didn't envision how, what they meant when they were saying some of these things. It's my understanding that in stuff for a long time, anytime uh, a map was presented in a module, the squares were 10 feet. But at some point, that switched to being five feet. Do you know when that change happened? I'm not exactly sure. I do think because some of the earlier dungeons were meant to be a little bit more sprawling, because, you know, in a way, the thought process was everybody was going to make their own mega dungeon and, you know, I'm going to explore <laughs> level one until we reach second level and then we'll travel down to level two and you keep mapping this out by room by room. And I think that's part of why you know, you had the 10 foot standard for that, because you wanted to make this dungeon complex this huge thing. I know at least a lot of the adventures that I saw in second edition used five foot scale for a lot of things. There were a few encounters where it's like, oh, here's this big valley where that might be still in, you know, 10 foot. But a lot of those were in five foot. I don't know that there was an official start using five foot now, but I think because second edition did do a little bit more with set piece battles instead of like gigantic mega dungeons, that that is really where you start seeing that scale kind of change. There was one thing, though, now that you mentioned uh, five foot scale versus 10 foot scale, that was kind of interesting. This is years down the line, but when I was in Pathfinder Society, there was a adventure, an adventure that we were playing through, and we were so frustrated because there was this massive bottleneck. And apparently the problem was that the map was drawn to 10 foot scale, even though that was not standard for Pathfinder. And it was marked as five foot scale, which is why there were all these bottlenecks in this dungeon where oh. it kept, you know, being where basically the first person in line could, you know, meet the first monster in line. And that was it. And it was it was really frustrating, but it was so strange because that wasn't even a standard like no one was using 10 foot scale for anything. And the fact that this map was using 10 foot scale and then said it was five foot scale just threw it. it it blew everyone's mind <laughs> <playing> through that <laughs> one. <laughs> 
speaking of the the days of yore, what was a player's job when it came to map in those early years? So in the earliest editions of D&D, the players, not just the characters, had roles in the group. So one of the roles that players might have is the mapper, meaning that that player was supposed to listen to what the DM was describing and draw a map based on what the DM expressed to them. The DM was not supposed to correct them or disabuse them of any notions. They were just supposed to describe it exactly as the as it exists, because we all know the English language is perfect for <laughs> describing precise measurements. <laughs> you know, even today, people occasionally bring up mapper as a job that players can do mm-hmm. at the table. I think we did a gnome cast where JT brought that one up, but he mm-hmm. did add the caveat that that's not really something that is that crucial or important anymore. It's interesting because in fifth edition, there's literally a rule that I think a lot of people miss. And that is if one person in the party is saying that they're mapping, you can always find your way through all of the locations you've already been through. You just have to say that that person is mapping and that person does not get to use passive perception while they're mapping. I know I definitely found it a bit tedious to try and keep track of a dungeon. Mm hmm. I want to say there was there was a 3.5 campaign I briefly played in, which was run a little more old school, and we were supposed to keep track of the the dungeon that we were exploring, and it was annoying because where do you start <laughs> on the paper? Because which direction do you go? And oh no, I started too close to the edge, and now I've run out of room. And but I did really enjoy creating an overland map when I was playing in the Pathfinder Kingmaker campaign that we played several years past, which was a bit more of a hex crawl yeah. than, you know, dungeon exploration. That was fun, but I'm glad I don't have to keep track of maps on my own paper anymore. Speaking of maps, it's also very interesting that somehow D&D did settle into this idea that for personal scale, when you're exploring a dungeon and fighting things, you know, on the zoomed in scale, you use squares. But when you're exploring the wilderness, you use hexes. (laughs) I mean, you can still get a good argument going between grognards if you bring up squares versus hexes. There's been a few D&D, like the DMG will show you what it looks like when you use hexes instead of squares. You know, now, but not in earlier editions. (laughs) I know um, our Gnome Stew's Matt Nagel is Mm -hmm. very... uh, very particularly, like, I mean, he's our math guy, so <laughs> if you get him talking about squares versus hexes, he will go on. He will allow you to use squares, but he believes hexes are superior. <laughs> Speaking of math and movement, you know, I'm not going to skip ahead, but just, you know, Matt, listening to, if you listen to this, our fourth edition one's probably really going to make him <laughs> thrilled. Anyway... So- <laughs> So moving on, how did the third edition change the use of maps in D&D? So I know there's going to be some people that will argue this, that you don't, you didn't need to do this, but the use of a representational battle map became pretty much mandatory in third edition. Many of the rules required precise positioning. So for example, characters, if they didn't move at all, would still get to shift five feet There were rules for when and when you couldn't move that produced attacks of opportunity. Flanking depended on knowing exactly when someone was directly opposite you, which was 
easier when you're a flanking a medium-sized creature, but then there were all of these like, draw a line from this point to this point to make sure that when you're flanking a huge creature, you're actually exactly opposite one another. <laughs> so it was a lot harder to measure without a precise map. And also a lot of the abilities that you would start getting from some of these classes and feats were based on those really precision, you know, like when you make a five foot step, you can make an additional stab with a dagger or things like that. It started, at least for me, to feel like if I was going to use any of those optional rules, I really had to use a battle mat because otherwise I felt like I might accidentally cheat somebody out of something they would have gotten from moving the right way. One of my gamer horror stories involves a GM who insisted on doing all of his 3.5 combats <laughs> as theater of the mind. He was a little bit arrogant about his game being superior because it was based on actual medieval history rather than oh, just D&D fantasy. And the idea of having to use a battle map is ridiculous. We are creative people. We can just describe this and go from there. But at the same time, he wouldn't actually let you make use of some of your abilities that were dependent upon those very specific movements. Mm -hmm. I am still angry that he insisted there was no possible way my rogue could get into position to flank and take advantage of sneak attack. And that's the problem. Like, if you were going to be a generous DM and actually say, yeah, you can get around them or even... Give me a tumble check to make sure you didn't provoke an attack of opportunity. But if you were going to do that by DM Fiat to say, nope, you can't get flanking. It's like, this is why there was a battle map in this. Yeah. So you, so I could see where I got that and be sure of it. And, and to be fair, I had another friend who would run Pathfinder without a battle map. And mm -hmm. it was usually fine. Yeah. Because it was, you know, the rule of cool what are you going to do that's cool? And, oh, yeah, give me an acrobatics check to see if you can tumble through those bugbears to get on the mm. other side and flank. And, like, okay, describe to me what that looked like because that was cool. That type of thing. It was definitely very much a... It depended on the type of GM you had, but I'm still mad about that. I'm a rogue. Let me sneak attack, damn it. The other interesting thing is I had a player in one of my groups that was, like, the opposite. We had a DM that wasn't a super stickler for things like we used battle mats but maybe not all the time and he would try and say things like sure you got into position and this player would get upset because he was like well i took this feat and this feat and this feat and i would rather know for sure that i legally did this and the dm would say yeah you legally did it and he would be like no i took these things to interact with the rules i want to see that i did this legally i don't <sighs> want to have the dm just tell me that I managed to do this. So, I mean, that was kind of the opposite position where he was being given things and he wanted to prove that he earned it without the DM telling him that he did. Yeah, that's also frustrating. <laughs> Basically, that player was in the wrong game. Yeah. So moving on to fourth edition, did it do anything new with these ideas regarding battle maps? So one of the first things was kind of like we were saying at the end of third edition, where they would start designing adventures with these certain set pieces with battle mats in them. Fourth edition really ramped up the idea that it was going to include battle mats in the adventures that they published. So there were usually multiple maps that had or multiple basically posters that folded out on more than one side that would have these locations on them for you to use. So my, my buddy Scott 
was the one that ran most of the fourth edition games we played. And at the time when he was running these games, he worked for a small print shop and had <laughs> access to a large format printer. So we had all of the coolest battle maps printed out for our games. Here's where we get into the the uh, math that would drive Matt nuts here <laughs> is to simplify things. Diagonal movement in fourth edition wasn't any different than any other movement. So, you know, in three five, the rule was basically every other diagonal movement that you moved would cost you twice as much. Whereas in fourth now, if you just move diagonally, you actually moved faster than if you moved in one of the cardinal directions. There were people that didn't like that, but I mean, it was basically meant to simplify this. Another thing they did to simplify things is a fireball was a square. <laughs> Instead of making any of these templates where it was like two and then three and then four and then, you know, you know, to kind of make it look like a, you know, a sphere. It was just this sphere is actually a cube that's four foot by four foot. <laughs> and it affects this area. Honestly, it did make it a lot easier to to measure where area effects were at. Mm -hmm. Fourth edition also had a lot more movement based powers, like when you would hit someone and shift them three squares back or you could move them one side or over to the other. And a lot of that was kind of neat because it played into a lot of the team tactics that, mm -hmm. you know, certain abilities, you know, if somebody shifts somebody right over next to another player, then they're set up to use their special ability on them. So there actually was a lot of important positional rules that came up in fourth edition that were more important because of what you could do as opposed to third edition, where it was kind of important because of what you couldn't do as opposed, you know, getting punished by attacks of opportunity all over the place. There were a lot of um, the individual abilities that characters gained in fourth edition that made having a battle map pretty essential for combats. It made it easier for all of the abilities characters had. So moving into our current play space of 5th edition, did it change anything? Did it change anything back? Did it change anything brand new? I would still say for me, for any kind of like more complex fight, I would much rather have a battle mat, but I definitely feel like it's less necessary in 5th edition than it was in 3rd and 4th. Flanking isn't an official thing. I'm sorry, everybody that likes Critical Role and believes that flanking is not an optional rule. It is an optional rule, and some of us really hate it. So, <laughs> no, it is not a thing that you get automatically. What I find funny is that anyone who played a fair amount of third or fourth edition still <laughs> thinks in terms of flanking and uh -huh. brings it up when they're in combat. I call this, you know, uh, edition rule screen burn. Uh -huh. It's like we played with it so much back in the day that it's hard to basically erase it and say, oh, hey, that doesn't actually matter anymore. You know, I even still will get people going, hey, I'm flanking. Does this give me advantage? No, no, it doesn't give you anything. The only person that's usually worried about that is the rogue. And they're not even worried about flanking. They're just like, do I have an ally within five feet of the guy I want to stab his kidney? I just need you to tap him on the shoulder so I get my sneak attack. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, the templates are no longer just uh, lines and squares like they were in fourth edition. We kind of went back to fireballs actually being spheres. <laughs> there is some interesting information in the fifth edition DMG 
that kind of gives you an idea that if something is this volume, it should be able to hit this many characters, which you can use to help, you know, facilitate a theater of the mind thing. If you're going to hit somebody with a fireball and you're like, I don't know how many people I should hit. Well, it should hit at least four. And then, you know, you have an answer at least if you do want to run things, you know, theater of the mind, at least for a combat or two here or there. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, definitely kind of shifted things back to where it is optional but helpful. What are the advantages of having a planned map for a GM? I like having features that the PCs are meant to interact with show up on the map. So if you have trees and half walls, it makes it more likely that people are actually going to remember, oh, cover is a thing. I could actually, you know, increase my armor class by standing behind this thing. If you have cliffs and pits, you are much more likely to get people to try and use a shove maneuver to throw them into those things. If you put fire on a map, this is almost always true, but if you put fire on a map, somebody wants to throw someone into the fire. (laughs) (laughs) And all of those things, you know, sometimes when you describe them theater of the mind, you have to remember that they exist. (laughs) But when they're on a mat, you know, it's right there and it's a lot harder to forget. It takes some of the weight off of the GM to not have to describe absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. You can plan ahead of time for what's going to be involved in any given encounter and not have to make it up on the fly or, you know, put in some special features or know where your adversaries are going to be. I think it also gives the players the opportunity to be more creative with the environment, depending mm-hmm. upon what the GM has put down for that scene. It lets you take a little bit of the burden off of you during the game because you've already got these things set up and planned. Now, on the opposite side of that, why might a GM want to use theater of the mind instead of using maps? So whenever you put down a map, there is almost kind of this expectation that you need to use it, especially like, you know, in face-to-face space, when you fold out a map and clear a room on the table and put this thing down, there's kind of this expectation in the back of your mind that Even if you think the PCs could talk their way out of the fight, you know, all your players may be thinking, okay, this fight is meant to happen because the DM got the map Mm -hmm. out and they're ready for this to go. The opposite is also kind of true because sometimes you don't think a fight is likely to happen at all and your player characters somehow manage to provoke one. Player characters going to player character. You were talking to pixies trying to... Trying to bargain for pixie dust. Why are you in combat? (laughs) So there are times when like a fight breaks out and you didn't know you were going to need a map. Hopefully those, because you weren't already kind of planning for that, you don't need a very detailed map to adjudicate what happened. You just need to (laughs) let your players blow off their steam when you weren't expecting them to do this thing. Um, There's also a time factor, you know, just opening up a pre-printed map, setting it out on the table, getting your miniatures out. That all takes extra time to resolve in a scene. So sometimes, you know, players, when they see a map, they are much more precise about their movement. So they might look and see like, well, if I go this way, it might be better than if I go this way. And if you're doing theater of the mind, there's not really much of that. There's just I'm going to move up to this person. I think it can definitely work better for games that are putting a little bit more emphasis on social or political intrigue. 
I know there's people out there that would kind of scold me and say, D&D is all about the combat. It's too tactical to not have combat. And it's like, okay, yeah, I get that. But sometimes the game veers into the social, Mm -hmm. political intrigue instead of just straight combat. Yeah. And maybe that's not what everyone is doing with the game, but some people do. And as a result, you don't need to put as much effort into creating maps. And, you know, as Jared said, you put a map in front of your players and it encourages that tactical thinking and the players are going to expect to fight. Also, if the GM put a map out, the players may think that they're meant to have a fight on that map. There are going to be players, and you want to treasure these players because they care about your work as a GM, (laughs) but they may not want to avoid the fight because they know you put work into it. And so sometimes you just want to be like, no, no, we're not going to, we're not going to have a map here because we're hopefully not going to have a fight at the, (laughs) you know, spring ball that the king is throwing for his courtiers. It's interesting, too, because... It is a double-edged sword because I greatly appreciate those players that are like, I don't want to ruin your plans, but on the other hand, I don't want them necessarily thinking this is all about my plan. Right. Now that we are in the digital age and many of us run online through VTTs, how has that changed our relationship with battle maps? So I feel like it's somewhat mitigated that problem of if you have a map, it means a fight. Because now when I run in Roll20, it's way easier for me to just have you on a map. Mm -hmm. And um, the thing from uh, our campaign that I was going to point out is I have a map for your Azazah's throne room and for the mansion that all of your players stay in. We often start the game in one of those. And there really hasn't been a lot of action scenes in either of those locations. They're just there because I like the fact that on a VTT, it's very easy to visualize those locations. Mm-hmm. So when you see them, you know, this has become burned into your head. This is your Azazah's throne room, or, you know, this is where we go between adventures and hang out with, you know, uh, uh, Marin's staff that he brought along with him. <laughs> <laughs> There's also just like so many maps that you can find online now, which means sometimes instead of, you know, thinking first about this is what I want the map to look like. And then going looking at it, you can look and find this completely amazing thing and go, I am going to design an encounter around this because this looks so damn cool. Uh huh. <laughs> now I go back and forth between using actual battle maps in VTs or using images as mood setting for most of the Sharn portion of the depths of Zendrick campaign. I simply had up an image of Sharn in place of a map to basically be like, okay, you guys are in Sharn because I am certainly not going to try and create a, a map of every single location. Yeah. The PCs could possibly go to in Sharn. That's not a journey I need to take. Okay. <laughs> um, but at the same time, when I did know there was going to be a fight, like when I knew they were going to get ambushed by the team who was angry at getting called out for bad behavior, I had a map ready to go. Most of the time, I'll just have the mood image of where they are. And I mean, maybe my players are smart enough. They picked up, oh, she doesn't plan on us having a fight here. But at the same time, it still helps to give the players that visual without always putting a map in front of them. Mm -hmm. 
I also, like Jared, love finding cool maps and planning <laughs> encounters around those maps. When I started planning for the Depths of Zendrick campaign, I went out and tried to find as many maps as I could that fit the theme of adventuring in a jungle. And as a result, I had some that I'm like, okay, I, ha I know what I'm going to do with this scene. I know what I'm going to do with this scene. Or I'll be like, hmm, I want to give them a fight against a rot troll. What's a good map I can use? Oh, hey, Zepico, uh, I think it's actually Jepeku, uh, mm -hmm. created a, um, a bridge map. Oh, this will be perfect for a troll. You know, there's so much cool stuff out there. Oh, yeah, definitely. I know, like, when, when you all were still doing the, the plane walking, I was really happy when I finally found this thing that looked like the path and the kind of like faded astral stuff on either side of it, because it was like, okay, now we can have encounters on the path while you're walking between dimensions. Yep. And it actually looks like what it should look like when you're doing that. <laughs> and like for the play test, I loved the pink trees with the, uh, with, you know, all of the, the blue highlights that we had for the Feywild. Yeah. Encountered because that just screamed Feywild to me that, you know, those super colorful pink trees and, all of these blue highlights and all of that. It was like, no, this is perfect for this encounter here. Yeah, there's something really cool about finding just the perfect map to use in your VTT. Mm -hmm. And there are some fiddly bits with getting them into VTTs, getting them sized right, various things. But let's move into talking about some useful things to keep in mind when you're planning and putting maps into use. Okay, so for one thing, I definitely want a map to help set the mood. So in addition to providing a space to put down miniatures, I want to make sure that it looks right. The forest is a good example there because you can find very similar forest maps. And if you have some that are more gray and the leaves are more like brownish green, that is a much more like scary looking encounter than like the maps that I found for the Feywild where you have all of these, you know, like pink blossoming trees that just look <laughs> super colorful. And, you know, you can have trees in the same placement and about the same amount of room in the clearings for the fights, but those two maps are going to portray a lot different feel for the encounter. Um, one, you, you're ready for a red cap to come out and murder you in the big pink forest, but it doesn't feel quite as right if you have like zombies shambling out of the, the shiny pink forest. <laughs> Darn well better be pixie zombies. <laughs> the other thing is there are times when I really want to make sure the players were going to use aspects of the terrain. Sometimes I will put notes on the map. I did this like in some of our playtests too, because I really wanted the playtest to focus on this. These trees will provide half cover if you're next to them, or this fire specifically does 2d6 points of damage just so that even, you know, and I try not to make it too obtrusive on the map, but I still want it there so that it is, a note that is referenced on the map as people are playing so that they know this has a mechanical effect instead of just being a cool looking thing on this map. One of the things I will suggest to people is be mindful of distances. Keep in mind how far the characters can actually move in any given turn. Think about the um, area of effects they may be tossing out there. It can change how tense an encounter is real quick if it is either too small or too large. I ran into this with some of the maps I used in the Depth of Zendrick campaign because I resized them to be like, this is the ruins of a tower that a giant would have lived in. 
So every, you know, five foot squares became 10 foot squares so that it would work with the players feeling like they are walking through a place that a giant used to call home. As a result, it meant when the combat started, the players were really, really far away <laughs> from the things they needed to fight. So pretty much all the people with ranged abilities got to pick stuff off before it was even an issue. It's just something to keep in mind, especially because a lot of the the nicer battle maps you can find out there from people on Patreon or otherwise are huge. Mm -hmm. They are massive, and you've got to be careful about how you set up your combats because my players can move 30 feet, <laughs> and the monsters are 100 feet away. So it's going to be a little while before we get into this actual fight. Unless you're a little bit higher level, and then the, the monk can run halfway across the map, and everyone else is still sitting back there going, I don't think you should fight him on your own. <laughs> I still remember one of my very early 5e games I played. It was a similar thing. We were back here. The orcs that were going to attack us were down there. The wizard cast Expeditious Retreat on himself and ran up to the front line and then got mad because he was up there alone for two rounds getting beat on by the orcs. We're all like, dude. Not all of us can make ourselves faster. <laughs> Dude, what are you doing? You're a wizard. <laughs> another, another piece of advice I will give you is make sure you put a variety into your maps you use. Players will get bored if it's always just a rectangle with some painted terrain and little else, or it's just some boxes, or it's a rectangle with a corridor here and a corridor there. You know, put in some cliffs and some pits and some bridges and cliffs and trees and boulders and, you know, if there's a chandelier, make sure the players know there's a chandelier because <laughs> somebody deserves the right to try and swing on that chandelier. Exactly. The last thing I'm going to say is don't forget to let the adversaries also take advantage of the terrain unless you have specifically made sure all of your monsters are idiots. They can do some of the same strategizing that the players can't. You know, don't be a jerk about it, but they can make use of the map and try and push somebody over the edge of a cliff or, you know, use the trees as cover. Take advantage of that. Yeah, something I thought of just as we were discussing all of this, I have seen really neat maps. And one thing that I would say is make sure you look at how big your adversaries are that are going to be in a map because I've seen like, there was this neat fighting pit map that I saw. And if I had had the player characters fighting another party, it would have been a great map. But with three large sized creatures that actually took up a whole lot of room in that, that fighting pit. And all of a sudden you didn't see most of the neat little details in it because there's not much more room other than those three large creatures in your party. Yeah. It's the spacing can get tricky. Mm-hmm. Moving on, we've got our last question. We're looking to the future now. And so what are your thoughts on the promise of 3D virtual dungeons and VTTs? The first thing I am going to say is currently the only practical use for a 3D VTT is if you have a lot of encounters that either take place with flying characters where height differences would be important 
or with undersea campaigns where again, you know, that height difference matters. That isn't what most campaigns do. So I'm going to say this, this is going to sound bad. I don't think there is a burning need for this concept. To me, it kind of feels like something that is potentially flashier than it's worth. We'll see once we start seeing it implemented a little bit more. I do think like something that looks more 3D that's kind of isometric where you're not worried about, you know, height, you know, like distance in the air and all that can look kind of neat. But it just also it just feels like there's there's a lot of potential to sink a lot of time and effort into doing it that may not be a big payoff for the way the game currently rewards you for engaging with that type of play. I think a lot of the companies that are looking at creating these 3D virtual play spaces are more focused on trying to recreate the video game feel, mm-hmm. um, which I get it. There's a lot of money in video games that is not in tabletop RPGs. Mm-hmm. A lot of them think this is the way to go to, you know, it's the next generation, but I'm honestly at a wait and see stage. I am concerned about how this would be implemented. I don't want to see it become an impediment to creativity for GMs, but it could also be cool if done correctly. Give me a really cool character creator that I can create my character to interact in this space, and that could be a lot of fun. Regardless of what we want, this may be the future. Yeah. It may be the way things go. But when it comes down to it, ultimately, we still always have our pen and our paper mm-hmm. and, you know, can sit down at a table with each other and play that way or just decide, hey, we're going to get on Zoom and do theater of the mind. Yep. If they make it too complicated, I think a lot of home games may go that way. Too complicated or too expensive. And I know, like, the pitch of... What if your home game could look like Baldur's Gate 3 is going to be super compelling to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But the thing I would posit is knowing, okay, and this is me having played with, say, Neverwinter Nights for a long point, you know, a long time. There was a limited number of tile sets that you had in Neverwinter Nights. A lot of those tile sets could start getting repetitive mm-hmm. because there's only so many tile sets you're going to make available immediately. Even if they let you spend infinite money to buy new tile sets, they're not all going to be available right at the beginning. And then it does get more and more complicated shifting through all these different tiles. It's like having an entire house full of uh, Dwarven Forge. Some of it's really neat, but I don't want to build every single encounter out of them because it's going to drive me nuts wondering where that one corner piece that would look really neat is here that I don't know where it's at. Yeah, I have played quite a bit of Slasta's user-created content. There are some really, really good campaigns that people have made using the tools Slasta have provided. There is a very distinct visual difference between the campaign the devs of the game have created and the campaigns that a user can create with the materials they've provided. Yeah. All of the places you go are square. You know, like they're rectangles uh, and, you know, there's some players who've done some very clever things with these, but it is still limited in what the players can do. So it's, uh, 
We'll, we'll see. The technology mm-hmm. might get there someday, but I don't see it getting there anytime soon or being worth my financial and time investment. Yeah, just so I'm not tiptoeing around this too much, I will specifically say I don't think by 2025 the 3D VTT that Wizards of the Coast wants to roll out as the official D&D one is going to be as robust as a 2D VTT that can implement the rules better is going to be. We'll see. They could prove me wrong. They could. But I really feel like that's not going to be up and running to the state that they want it in 2025. Even if they get it up and running to the state they want, I am worried it's going to be cost prohibitive. Yes. For most people to get into because at least when they were shooting themselves in the foot, there was talk of, you know, well, the players also have to buy in to be able to create their characters mm-hmm. or be able to access it. And like, I can't do that to my players. Yeah. Even if I can afford to invest in everything that needs to be bought to play in that VTT, I don't know that my players are going to be able to afford to do it. And I want to keep this hobby as egalitarian as possible Mm -hmm. and make it for everyone. Oh, yeah. Even those of us who don't have a whole lot of money to spend on this stuff. Yes, I know. I know from having attended Gen Con that there are many gamers who have very (laughs) deep pockets and they like spending money on things they enjoy. Just ask any of the waiters or waitresses at the restaurants (laughs) around the convention center. They will tell you how much they love the gamers that come for Gen Con because they spend a lot and they tip well. (laughs) But not all gamers are at that space, and I don't want to exclude the gamers who can't afford to live at that threshold of spending. One of the things that jumped out at me when they showed the tech demo for the D&D one is... They had the fire on miniature bases. So that wasn't just a thing that was part of terrain. Those were miniatures, which gets me to thinking, if I'm buying miniatures, do I have to buy these terrain miniatures in order to place these things onto an existing map? And it just, there's just so many question marks about it right now. Yeah, it's, it's, as I said, I'm very much a wait and see. My general overall feeling about it is, I would rather have a 2D VTT that implements the rules well and intuitively and easily enough that you can play the game without worrying about manipulating the VTT than a VTT that looks fancier. Very much so. No time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. Every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to the listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts but it'll always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience. Speaking of battle maps, uh, (laughs) Dungeon Draft and Wonder Draft are two tools that I am very close to purchasing for myself. As might be inferred from the name, Dungeon Draft helps create encounter-style maps, while Wonder Draft is designed for larger terrain overland maps. Both can create some pretty slick-looking maps and are Pretty much just what I was looking for for some custom maps when I restart the Depths of Zendrick campaign. Uh, My buddy Tristan, who's currently running the Night's Dark Terror campaign, has been using it. And it was like, oh, this is a pretty cool map. What did you use to create it? Or where did you find this? And that's when we got started. And 
I haven't pulled the plug yet because money is money. We're talking about money again. <laughs> uh, money was a little tight, so I didn't want to buy them just yet. But both of them are on my short list to get very soon. And I wanted to call out Loki Battle Mats. I think it's pronounced Loki. It's spelled L-O-K-E. As long as we're on the topic of Battle Mats, I have a review up on Gnome Stew for some of the Wirebound Battle Mat books that they had provided me. I've been using that for the Saturday campaign that I run for my daughter and her friends. Um, I've also spent my own money to pick up some of those same maps in VTT form because they sell all of their maps that are in their books in uh, digital form. But not only are the foldout books really cool, but they now have like this whole line of other products. Like they have like clings that you can put on the map so that, you know, like if you want to put a treasure chest here or if you want to put like stairs that lead onto another map or things like that, you can do that. They have a Mega Dungeons line now that it's coming out where it's like a really, really big book. And also like you can fold the page and it leads to the next level of the dungeon and then you can flip the page and there's this, you know, other two page spread of a giant level of a dungeon. And not only can you find these at, you know, hobby stores or order them online, but Loki Battle Mats has they're in places like Barnes and Noble now. So if you know where they're keeping their RPG items in Barnes and Noble, these things should be right there waiting for you. We are happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network, so we wanted to give a shout out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying us, also consider checking out Panda's Talking Games, queer gamers talking about tabletop role-playing games and making outtakes. Join Panda's Phil and Senda every Wednesday, answering listener questions about playing, running, and designing TTRPGs. Get cozy and let's talk about some games. We've used up all of our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you, and we hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure.